Welcome, Welcome to the to East, East Traumacast. This program was brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Advancing science, fostering relationships, and building careers. Now, on to the Traumacast. Thank you to Hemanetics for their generous and unrestricted grant for the Educational Resources Committee and TraumaCast. We are going to be addressing severe pelvic trauma and hemorrhage control today. We have some very smart and educated and experts in the area here online with us. I am Megan Quintana, and I am an assistant professor of surgery um, at George Washington University. Hi, everybody. I am Sham Murley. I am one of the surgical critical care fellows at University of Pennsylvania. I'm Lauren Dudas. I'm an acute care surgeon at West Virginia University. My name is Tatiana Cardenas. I'm an assistant professor and acute care surgeon at Dell Medical School at UT in Austin. And I'm Joe DeBose. I'm a trauma and vascular surgeon, and I work for Dr. Cardenas at University of Texas, Austin. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. Uh, we figured we would start out the conversation kind of addressing the basic hemodynamically stable patient who comes into your trauma bay that sustained an injury that is consistent with an unstable pelvic injury. So how do you approach this patient? How do you manage this patient? First things first is your ABCs, of course. That's going to be your basic way that we triage and uh, evaluate our trauma patients with our primary survey. And we use our typical adjuncts, chest x-ray fast, pelvis x-ray. And on pelvis x-ray, you've got your unstable pelvis. There's going to be one of two things will historically happen at our institution in my hands. Either the patient will have a pelvic binder on that's a fancy gadget with lots of levers and Velcro straps and things of, of the sort, or we will go ahead and put one on. I love using a sheet, a folded sheet with two towel clamps or clamps holding them together. The main thing is keeping them over the greater trochs centered over the girded trochanter and not having it too tight, too high. That's important. So a lot of times these patients will come in with pelvic binders because that is an activation criteria at our institution. Um, and then hemodynamically stable, they'll, you know, go to the CT scanner. And Dr. DeBose, anything to add to that before I ask some specific? I think Dr. Kearney's hit it on the head. You know, the interesting about thing about a binder, and maybe we could get into this later, is that, you know, not all pelvic fracture patterns, there's this debate about the open book, sure. What's the purpose of a binder is to close the pelvic volume for hemorrhage. I had a lateral compression yesterday, last night actually, where the femoral head is sitting up near the colon, right? And it's, am I making that better or worse with putting the binder on? So that's a matter of debate. You'll definitely hear a lot of people with more gray hair than me, you know, harp and percentage you know, on that debate. But if nothing else, the binder at least keeps the patient from comfort level and from things moving around. Even if you do have that lateral compression mechanism, I don't think a binder is, is a deal breaker in any way, shape, or form. I put a binder on this guy because it kept things from moving around, even though it probably didn't help the, the pelvic you know, volume closure. You know, another thing, Megan, I wanted to bring up, there is the patient that comes in with the pelvic binder already on that was placed in the field. And then there's the patient that you discover, you know, maybe the open book pelvic or an unstable pelvic fracture on a pelvic plane film once you have already performed your adjuncts. I would argue that 100% of the times when the pelvic binder comes on already, it needs to be loosened or removed or uh, unfastened. Uh, prior to a pelvic, an initial pelvic x-ray being done, because you could easily 
close again the purpose of the binder is to close that space and if you're closing an open book fracture it may not be as obvious um and so i i will typically you know poke the bear so to speak and in the trauma bay um uh, loosen the 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 pelvic binder for that pelvic x-ray and then of course for any lines that may need to go in yeah i, I completely completely agree where else would we get good pictures for the textbooks of before and after for the pelvic binder if we didn't loosen it down but you know, the, another th mistake I see a lot, uh, or not a lot, but I've seen done before is everybody, you know, you get, say the patient comes in with no binder, and, but a mechanism is clear and you're rocking the pelvis and they say, ah, my pelvis hurts. Well, that's not the time probably to show the med student, hey, come poke this guy's pelvis. Look, at it, look, it's wobbly. You know, it's probably not a good time to be doing that. If once you detect or suspect it, get you done what you need to do, get done with the groins, lines and all that good stuff, get your x-ray, put the binder back on. Okay, we actually just hit on a few really great topics that I do want to kind of highlight. But number one, what do you guys think of the pelvic physical exam? You think it's a useful thing? You know, the studies show maybe we're not so great at defining the unstable pelvis, but what do you guys think? I think there are a few different variables that come into play with uh, the pelvic exam. If you are trying to do a pelvic exam on a patient that is 500 pounds, for example, and body habitus could be potentially limiting. I am not particularly well known for my upper body strength and patients come in on hot, pretty high up on their, um, on the, on the ED gurney, just because if they get intubated or whatever, they need to be hired. There's no way that I'm going to do a great, a great exam. Um, the obtunded patient also becomes a difficult patient, obviously to assess in terms of whether they are having tenderness or, or any kind of discomfort. So, so it, I, I think it may be 50-50, just depending on, you know, who it is, uh, the examiner's body habitus and the patient's body habitus. Um, but I mean, it's pretty, when it's unstable and you can, I mean, you crunch down, I mean, you feel it, it, it you can tell. Um, so I think it, it's, it's useful in certain instances and maybe not in, in others. To go along with our physical exam, which, you know, may or may not be helpful, are there other signs that you look for? I have some attendings that will place binders kind of proactively if they're hemodynamically unstable and they don't have another good answer, even if the pelvis seems stable or because it can be deceiving. What do you think about some of the other things we can be looking for besides our physical exam there? Yeah, it's not a terrible, all god awful thought, right? If you have a normal pelvis, you put a binder on, you're really not for a couple of minutes, you're probably not hurting anybody. It's an interesting thought. I don't do that. I do think one thing that's often overlooked is if you have evidence of a pelvic fracture, you're checking the perineal skin and all that good stuff. Even the, the we could hotly debate the utility of a rectal exam and trauma. The often, it's never a complete exam unless I digitize someone's rectum. But if you look at the pelvis, right, at the skin, the pelvis, an open fracture is a whole different ball game when you're communicating your orthopedic surgeons about, and, and determining antibiotic needs and infectious risk than a closed pelvic fracture. So, and sometimes it's a small laceration in the perineum. And so detecting those as best you can to kind of put people in the right buckets and categories for infectious avoidance is, I think, useful. That leads on to what I was going to ask is, do you put Foley catheters in all these patients or straight catheter, try to get a UA prior to leaving for a scan? We're talking stable patients only. Yeah, I don't know. Tatiana, I don't know what, what your thoughts are on this. I, it's not, if there's no blood thymiatis and it's not going to slow things down, that's fine. I think there, that's a very reasonable thing to do. It's certainly going to be easy to maintain your watch. Look at your output. It's diagnostic to some degree. If I get a bunch of blood in it, then I'm a whole, I got other things going through my mind. Um, and it certainly will 
you know, take the, all the fluid out of the bladder. Sometimes a full bladder is a little useful though on that CT scan, right? Because you can do with modern CT phasing, you can actually do, some centers will do a CT cysto where you can actually see if there's extra of the bladder. So people have different practices. I'm inclined not to really push the issue of putting the Foley in ahead of time, but I don't get a lot of heartburn if, if it does get done. Neither do I. I'm not a big proponent for it. I just, I kind of want answers fast as most of us do. So anything that would delay, I, I'd say no, probably not. I do want to go back to the point too about the pre-hospital binder. So when you take that down during your exam, is there a certain part in your exam? Will you finish your primary? Do you take it down kind of immediately? Where in that exam do you take down the pre-hospitally placed binder if you're going to poke the bear, so to speak? If it's appropriately placed, I'll take it down before, right before we do a pelvic x-ray. If it's not appropriately placed, then we'll, you know, place it in the correct fashion. Yeah, I agree. I think it's kind of an adjunct. It falls in that adjunct between primary and secondary survey or modern era. It's really actually primary survey adjunct CT, but that's the CT becomes our secondary survey in many instances, doesn't it? Now, just to move on to hemodynamically unstable patient with obvious pelvic fracture, let's say you've done your primary, you have a, you know, abnormal blood pressure, elevated heart rate, you get your pelvis x-ray, open book pelvic fracture. Let's start with what we just do in the trauma bay. I, I think we can all agree if there's an open book fracture, we're going to place a binder. What else can we do in the trauma bay to optimize this patient's care? You want me to say it, don't you? You want me to say Reboa? Is that why I'm on the podcast? <laughs> Is that what Kutan invited me here? So Deboa could be Rebo say Reboa? You did um, you got me. Fair enough. Uh, so you're limited, right, to what you can do. And and there are historically, there are places that have experimented with doing preperitoneal packing, right? In the bay. I think in the 70s, Ken Maddox was doing X lapse and packing. And the, anything we can do to control hemorrhage as early as possible. So without getting all up in the Reboa discussion. It's a, simply, it's an occlu occluding the aorta and the inflow to the pelvis one way or another. If they're really crashing, you get the same effect from doing an ED thoracotomy, right? You're occluding the proximal aorta and that occludes not just abdominal flow, but pelvic flow. And sometimes you pelvic, ED thoracotomies have been done for pelvic bleeding because you didn't know, right? Well, my preference with Reboa utilization is if, it, if they have a positive fast, obviously they get a zone one, but we're, we're really talking about pelvic fractures here. So let's say the negative fast patient, zone three pelvis. I start with arterial line and I have them hang blood. And by the time you get arterial line in and hooked up, if you're really good and you have, particularly if you have a level one or Belmont, you've gotten two or three units into the patient by the time that A-line's in and hooked up, even if you're moving fast. I'm pretty good at A-line and they can always get two units into the Belmont here in Austin before I can, before I can blink, sometimes more. If they haven't responded by that time and you're getting good measurements, for me, that's when the Rebola goes into zone three. And I move, I think, you know, the, the consensus statement from the American College of Surgeons and American College of Emergency Physicians says that you can have it up in zone three for 90 minutes of total occlusion. I'm a big proponent of going to partial occlusion because I don't like any of that ischemic time. But the total occlusion, once you put it up, affords you time if you don't have access and you don't have blood hanging in. So let's say we have a problem with IV access. I may go a little earlier if they're hypotensive to putting it in zone three, then get a central line, then come back and go to partial occlusion which with two A-lines, it's a little tricky logistically to work in your ER, but it's, it's like anything else. If you train your team well, they can get it done. I had one last week, a zone three that I uh, utilized this for, went to partial rebola and was able to get the guy to CT scan, 
he had a blush and we took him up to angioembolization with no other injuries identified. And I'm, a, I'm an outlier. I'm a dual trained trauma vascular surgeon. I use balloons all the time, but I think the majority of Urboas are being done by trauma surgeons in this country. And the ones that are doing it and gain experience can do it safely. I think it's a toolkit every trauma surgeon should know about a piece and that those that feel comfortable should add it to their toolkit because sometimes it's the only option short of an ED thoracotomy. T, do you agree with all that? Is that I'm trying to convert my partners here and they're all very receptive and open-minded about it, but we got, it's with, it's a new technology you're bringing into a new place. When I was with Dr. Quintana at Shock Trauma, if you turned around, she was going to have a Reboa in somebody. And it's just not the case uh, necessarily here yet, but we'll see if it's a piece that people feel comfortable using and adding to their toolkit. Absolutely. I think it's a, I think it's a super valuable tool. It's just a matter of, you know, I think the way you've instituted it, you've got to have just like anything else you've, you've got to, it's more than just the surgeon putting it in, right? It's the ED having it available, the techs knowing what it is, where it lives, everybody knowing where it lives, being able to have everybody understand what it is when you go to total occlusion, that it's not just a, oh, let's, you know, lollygag and frolic around. And so having the appropriately trained team, which Joe has been awesome with, you know, training up the nurses and the ED staff and, and us, of course. And so it's just a matter of like waiting for that, you know, for that patient to come in and, and place it. So I'm, I'm excited to, to use it. I, I completely agree. So Tatiana, maybe you can talk. It sounds like Reboa is new. You're, you, you guys are not using it prior. Talk about what you would have done before you had Reboa. Before I had Reboa, with that exact scenario, we'd place a binder, slam in blood. We've got fortunately to have the Belmont, that a rapid infuser. And so we get blood in and go upstairs for pelvic packing and an X-lap, really. If you have a hemodynamically unstable patient, just, you have an open book pelvic fracture in my hands, whether the fast is positive or negative, if they obviously they're hemodynamically stable, not going to the CT scanner, but in my hands, if the fast, regardless, positive or negative, they're going to get an X-lap and they're going to get a pelvic packing. And then at that point, assuming that, you know, we've caught up with resuscitation, if they're still some, ideally you pack the pelvis and that's that, and you, you know, pack them up and go to, go to the SICU for, for continued resuscitation. But if there's any question that something's still bleeding, if there's still some hemodynamic instability or whatever might be going on, then at that point, I'd call our IR colleagues in and they're, or Dr. Dubose, I'd call him in, um, or Dr. Teixeira, our, our trauma vascular folks to come in and, and embolize, at least uh, squirt the pelvis. And then of course, a, a CT scan immediately post-op once hemodynamics are improved because you really don't know if there's a traumatic brain injury or not. That's really the thing that's on the table at that point. So we have a lot of young learners that are listening. So tell us a little bit more about your packing methods. You're doing a concurrent X-Lab. Yeah, there's a couple different uh, ways that we we do it. A um, couple of us will perform a, a regular X-Lab and then try and keep the preperitoneal portion, the preperitoneal pelvic packing portion separate, that incision separate. I don't, I keep it all contiguous and the same. I get into the preperitoneal space and start dissecting out beneath symphysis pubis. And inevitably you find it. There is going to be a large hematoma. There are going to be shards of bone potentially, you know, in that area. And so you just kind of have to be careful. And that's where the packing starts moving the bladder laterally on either side, putting in as many packs as you can, as you can fit is the idea. Once everything has been explored, then closing the skin over top of that portion that's packed just to ensure that there's like that tamponading effect 
I think is also something that that could be useful. How much are you dissecting to get down? Are you getting all the way to sacrum or? The yeah. beauty of these, this is when, it, when it's a real deal thing, there's not much dissection to do. I mean, that hematoma is down the space. I would say packed to the floor. Exactly. If I could get through the sacrum, I would do it, but I don't mm -hmm. want to make more bleeding. Yeah. If your packs don't fill up that space, blood will, right? And so that's that's the idea. I was going to say, what about flipping the script a little bit here? There's these descriptions of, you know, the, some of the dissection tools, the balloons that we use to dissect out for preperitoneal hernia repairs. People have talked about using that for an adjunct. Has anybody on the podcast read about that, talked about that, known anybody's actually done it? I've heard the theory of it, but it's, it's a space you can put that, that balloon is designed to dissect that space. Could it be used as a compressive device? In, particularly in isolated pelvic fractures, right? I'm not implying that you use it laparoscopically, but through that open incision, you stick the balloon in and you blow it up. That, that's another option that's been kind of interesting I've read about. It. I've never done that. I didn't know if anybody else on the podcast had. It kind of reminds me of like a bacteria balloon for uterine compression. Oh. For a Blakemore. Oh, the fellow reaches deep into the acumen. I love it. The moment that you said that, Joe, I thought about a Blakemore. But I mean, then it's a balloon, right? And so when you have a balloon in the setting of unstable fractures and potential bone fragments that are in that space, that could make a potentially unreliable hemorrhage control adjunct. Before you do your exit, you're taking your binder off. What are you doing once you finish packing? Yeah, I think you can, at that point, leave it off if you pack, but I don't think there's much downside to leaving it on as well. I think oftentimes in the context of getting lines in the groin or packing, what I will do sometimes, I, I'm, a, I'm a vascular access lover, so I always have to have access to the groin if I can, just in case I need a Reboa or if I need a central line. So what I often do is I'll put the binder, slide it down a little on the femoral, really the femoral heads are your fulcrum here to close the pelvis. So as long as you can slide that down, as long as the femurs are not shattered, you can actually internally rotate the feet and then tighten that binder around the proximal thighs and get much of the same result. You get a pretty good closure in many instances. And that also gives you that area right below the inguinal ligament then to be able to get access. It keeps it out of your open operative field. It's just another option to play with. So they talk about, on that note, they talk about uh, cutting a hole in the binder in order to get access to your groin. You think bringing it down to like the thigh level, the femoral, I, I realize where we're aiming for is the greater trochanters, but bringing it down might give you better access. You're not cutting holes in your occlusive device. And so maybe that's even better. Yeah, I got an F in grade school arts and crafts, so I don't try to do it in real life. I, I think that's a great option. I've seen people do it. It just takes time because you can't cut a binder that's already tight right we need to get the scalpel out and hope you don't cut the skin underneath so i just have a tent i have people hold the pelvis shift it down and then i have access to everything that uh, i need to get done and you, you know maybe a curl or something to kind of internally rotate the feet a little bit to give you that little bit of oomph extra from the femoral heads but all that implies you got intact femoral heads and intact femurs to even do that so when are you getting ortho involved that's a good question right it's the, uh, and I think just like we as all as trauma, if you, if we pulled uh, two dozen trauma surgeons for how they manage pelvic fracture, all the tools will be in the kit, but the order is going to be different. And it's dictated by the capabilities of the institution, personal preference, personal experience, um, and what you have available. And orthopods are no different. So I came from shock trauma where they would sl slap, we would all go to one hybrid room, we put a Reboa in, really bad ones. And Megan can testify this, really bad ones to get a Reboa. Go to our, our hybrid trauma room, awesome capability. 
right? And we have a, a room here we use in a similar fashion. It is fully capable of doing that, but nothing ran like the NASCAR pit crew at Chalk Trauma, like that room 15 that I still miss. But you could run them in there. You had the Reboa in. They would slap a C-clamp or an X-fix on, and then we would do our embolization if they didn't need additional packing. Or packing is sometimes in that mix, right? Because the Reboa is always a bridge to something. And if the other things are lagging, you put the Reboa up, you pack, and you take the Reboa down, right? Reboa is not a definitive tool to anything. It's a bridge to somewhere. It's got to be a bridge to – it can't be a bridge to nothing. But I, I, coming here to Austin, our orthopedic surgeons are very slick orthopedic trauma surgeons. They don't do exorcists. But I'll tell you what they do do is that patient gets done with definitive fixation pretty darn quick relative to the orthopedist at shock trauma had a huge backlog, right? And they prioritized as best they could, but they didn't get to everybody an hour, two hours or first case the next morning. And it, from their standpoint, that X fix is a, a, a bony damage control tool. But if you can get to the definitive bony operation earlier with your group and their capabilities, then some people don't even need the X fix. But you gotta have, you got to work that out with your orthopedic partners and leverage the capabilities and the expertise you have on hand. Yeah, I agree. It's really institution dependent what you can do and who's around and, and all that good stuff. Typically, the orthopods will, will go back together with them on this second operating room trip. So first one's done, packed, patients in the ICU has all their CT scans. And then when they return to the operating room to remove the packs, the orthopods will then tag on and, and fix the pelvis. I have another question that is certainly institution dependent, but so Tatiana, you're in the OR, you finished your packing, you are not worried about concomitant TBI or other uh, significant injury, you think this is isolated pelvis. If you call your IR docs, are they going to tell you you have to go to scan or are they going to take your word and take them? They're pretty good about uh, taking our word and, and taking them because we call Joe and Pedro. I love being a vascular trauma surgeon because I can do everything one-stop shop. And I think the folks I've worked with on this podcast know I love doing embolizations, responsible ones, right? Because embolization okay. can be taken too far. If you embolize the whole pelvis and you put a binder back on the pelvis, you're going to have a problem because you've devascularized tissue and then you further basically put a tourniquet on that. And that's where you get the perineal necrosis risk increasing. But if you're smart, you're selective and identify the bleeding well and get down to just the bleeding area, I think that's a perfect utilization here. And we have partnered with our, it's not that our, our docs are not capable, they are, but we are often much closer. And certainly when we're on call, there's six of us, two of us are dual trained. On the nights we're on call, we just get it done right away. There's no delay. And I'm not implying that everybody needs to go to a vascular fellowship, although I I'd be happy if everybody did, but having somebody with that expertise or a great relationship with your IR group, just, it just goes a long way with, if you can get really a responsive group. Commenting on that, you know, we, we were actually having this conversation with our group last week about, you know, do you pack and automatically call for an angioembolization or do you pack Hey, they're hemodynamically stable. They're doing okay. Let's just go to the ICU. And if they become unstable, then that's when you call. Or if something deteriorates, then that's when you call for an angioembolization. And I used to, it used to be a package deal um, for me. That's kind of how I was trained. And, and, but then, but then you kind of think about, all right, well, you've got a crushed, unstable pelvis. You've got a bunch of packs in it. Now we're looking at a potential um, uh, internal iliac embolization over like a more selective embolization. And so again, blood flow, tissue necrosis, 
um, you know, uh, those are all all things that are that are pretty high risk when you've got zero blood flow to that side um, of the pelvis. And so, yeah, those are things that I start to think about. And so I'm more selective now with regards to angioembolization after packing. So we've discussed packing, X-fix, and angioembolization. Are there any cases in which one or more of those would be completely contraindicated? Are there patients that you would never consider doing a pelvic packing on or X-fix or angioembolization? Um, I can't speak to the X-fix piece. I think the orthopods all have their particular opinions and our group here would say X-fix is never indicated because they're going to fix them early definitively. I'm not an orthopedic surgeon. I can't speak to that part. I don't think there's any, I think there's not any uh, absolute contraindications to, to an angiogram and someone who's bleeding to death to look and see if there's something you can do. It's inherent to what we do. We want to control hemorrhage. Packing to me is the same way. Um, the challenge is we got all these tools in the toolkit, right? Embolization, X-fix, packing, Reboa, all these things. There's like the data on all this stuff is really challenging because there's no comparator groups. No one's going to say, you know, I'm going to randomize this bleeding pelvic fracture to nothing and see how that works against embolization. So it's really challenging to determine what the, you know, what the utility is of these things in these, this particular really bad subset we're talking about. Even embolization, if you think about that, there's a lot of indications. The hypotensive patient with an obvious extrav is one, but what if they have a big hematoma? What if Tatiana calls and packs and there's a lot of blood in that pelvis? It's not bleeding through the packs, but there's a lot of blood. Can you help with embolization to mitigate additional ongoing bleeding? Answer is probably true in some patients, but I can't, it's hard for me to, to pick out which one specifically. And some big hematomas would probably, you, when you get in there and you selectively select a specific vessel, you'll find extrav underneath that hematoma that just wasn't enough to light up on the CT, but you don't know about it until you get in there. So it's, it's challenging. It takes a lot of, of discussion. It takes a lot of thought ahead of time of what you're going to do. And you have to know where all these, what if one toolkit piece is not available? What if your IR provider is busy doing another emergent procedure? What are you going to do then when you're stuck in, in there? Are you going to put a Reboa back in or then are you going to ask your orthopods? I know you don't normally do X-fix, but could you do it in this case? The flexibility is where we have pulling these tools is a real challenge. I think with the way we we look at this and the way we categorize all of these different adjuncts. So you've got to deal with bones and you've got to deal with blood vessels. And and, and in the most simplistic way possible in my mind is how I think of it is the the bone part is either going to be X fix or like initially or a pelvic binder. There's got to be some sort of stabilization initially. And then dealing with the blood vessels is either going to be your packing your angioembolization and Roboa in there somehow. Again, depending on what is available at your institution, that's going to be, that's really going to be your answer. And then with regards to your question though, about contraindications, the only patient population that I would say would be, would throw a wrench in this machine is our patients that are pregnant in their third trimester. Uh, <laughs> Having had a small human in my pelvis, I, I can't imagine, it, you know, that packing would be an easy feat uh, in an unfortunate event where there's, you know, a pregnant patient in situation. So that would be, we probably need to get a little bit creative and, and deliver baby and kind of have a multidisciplinary discussion real quick with OB and, and, and everybody involved and, and our vascular colleagues as well. What are your options in a pregnant patient? I think 
I think a Reboa would be great while you deliver, while you do a crash C-section. Go to the OR, patient's hypotensive, get blood resuscitated, go upstairs. There's If there's an unstable pelvis in a patient in their third trimester of pregnancy, there is probably something, baby needs to come out um, one way or another. And so I think that a Reboa in that case would be the perfect adjunct, I think. I, I don't know, Joe, what do you think about that? Have you Have you been in that situation before? I have not, and I hope I never am. Uh, a third trimester pregnancy, I sincerely hope I never am. But again, you just got to be really careful with that, you know, the positioning of that balloon, right? Because you want to, if baby's still viable and alive, I think most, almost all of these, if you're going back there that hypotensive to go forward to doing something in an operating room with these patients and they're that bad off, you're probably going to do it third trimester. Your OB is probably going to go first and get that crash C-section while you're resuscitating. And then you now no longer have the parasite in the lower pelvis and you can uh, get done what you need to get done. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think it'd be a unique situation if you have really that bad of a crushed pelvis that the, the baby is stable. So, yeah. um, and then also thinking that your definition of open book pelvis, pubic symphysis diastasis, a different definition in a patient who is in their third trimester of pregnancy because that is a normal thing in that patient population, kind of muddies the waters even more. ABCs always come first with the pregnant trauma patient as well. You treat mom and by saving mom and treating mom, you treat baby. We, the discussion around you know, what you do with baby in the setting of that is already moving into the operating room once that initial primary secondary adjunct um, evaluation has been done. So other intervention, let's say you are not a duly trained trauma and vascular surgeon, and you do not have interventional radiology capabilities at your institution. So maybe you're a smaller trauma center. What other options do you have? Well, something we, uh, it's been studied to LA County a little bit. It was certainly in vogue with Dr. Dimitriades there for a while, and still, they still use it to some degree. And I've used this in austere environments, right? My 20 years in the military, intense where you don't have it, the electric and those things. Packing obviously always plays, right? But direct control of the internal iliacs, right, is, is a useful thing. And whether you remel them or put a clip on them or put a vascular clamp, just slowing that inflow in the pelvis for major arterial bleeding can help. The challenge is if you definitively ligate those things, that is a that increases your risk of pelvic ischemia and perineal ischemia significantly, particularly in the context of a patient who's bled a lot, right? They're already physiologically depleted. Those tissues have already been deprived of oxygen delivery for a period of time. And now you're cutting off the well completely. I think at various times when I was there as a fellow, this is a lot longer ago than I care to admit, but we, we would remel them and then bring them back in a couple after the bleeding stopped or even leave the remels on or clamps on for a short period of time until we felt bleeding was controlled and then let one side or the other off just to make, see if we had things controlled with optimal packing. So that is a, a true austere and not to say our level three or four partners are austere, but they don't, if they don't have those capabilities, um, that is an option if you really don't see another way to get the patient off the table. Do you have any technical tips for that for people who may not have ever done that before? Yeah, the days of uh, open abdominal aortic surgery exposure for general surgery trainees and trauma and fellows is uh, rapidly diminishing. But you're going to do this through a standard laparotomy incision. You're going to sweep, lift the small bowel and, and the intestines out. You're going to have to deal with the sigmoid, which is going to flop one way or the other to get to the left or the right. 
but get everything else up and out of the way so you can almost see the aortic bifurcation. And if it's really hairy, put a clamp on there first and then dissect down to the internal relax or put a fist on it, put an aortic occluder on it and then slide down until you find the common iliacs. Immediately, you'll see the internal iliacs. Just get a right angle around it, put something on it, a vascular clamp or any of those kind of things. And then you can lift off the proximal clamp. So, but you can typically, in patients who are not reoperative and not super fat, if the minute you lift all the small bowel and the colon up towards the head and flip the, co the sigmoid colon over to the patient's left, you'll be able to see the iliacs back there and you'll see the aortic bifurcation. And that's a great place to start with your proximal inflow control. And then do you eventually work your way down to the iliac bifurcation, the internal come yeah. out and dissect all that out and then eventually isolate that vessel? Exactly. And the, sometimes you have to, when you're going left side, you got to flip the sigmoid to the right. When you're going right, flip it to the left. And that can be a bit of a challenge sometimes. And it's really challenging the male, the heavy set male, right? Narrow pelvis, deep, lots of uh, adipose tissue. I'm not saying it's easy. But it is, uh, if you have no other means and literally the patient is exsanguinating from some arterial source in their pelvis, it will at least buy you some time. And just that little bit of inflow occlusion alone allows some clot to form. Um, I think when you look at some of the animal models from the initial Reboa work, and you'll still see this. I see this all the time. I'll put a zone three Reboa in. So for somebody, let's say I've had a CT extrav, clear CT extrav. They're getting hypotensive. We get them uh, back to the ER bay and now they're getting worse. I put a, a, a Reboa in and I run them upstairs for embolization. By the time we do an angiogram, some of those, a, a good chunk of them, 20, 30%, based on the, the, the paper by Malika Harfus that looked at Reboa. Reboa alone, just the inflow occlusion for a little bit of time allows those vessels to constrict as they're supposed to when they're injured and allows some clot to form to form some tamponade. So I think that's, uh, you know, I think that that is a useful thing. I guess I pose the question a little bit funny, but even if you are at an institution where, you know, your IR doc is doing a GI bleed or you are just trying to buy time, it may not be even austere or whatever. So I think we talked about all of our uh, kind of tools in our armamentarium. The next thing we wanted to move on to were considering some complications, you know, immediate complications, and then maybe we can touch on some delayed complications to look out for. Yeah. I think, well, bleeding, bleeding, hemorrhage, exsanguination, those are your three leading immediate complications you're worried about. And, so, and I think people have this, sometimes the pelvis has to go back and repack. Sometimes you have to go further down the algorithm. Just because you're excellent at packing, it's always worked for you. If they're bleeding through those packs, you got to pull something else out of the algorithm or figure something else out. So flexibility with your tools is important. But beyond bleeding, I think the things I'm just brainstorming, we can all brainstorm a little bit. They, the guy I embolized the other night, Dr. Cardenas is, uh, and I have been treating, he has horrible urinary retention uh, to the point that he, every time he tries to urinate, he defecates himself. And that was a whole thing, unfortunately, last night because he's frustrated because he wasn't getting any response or relief from that. So we put a Foley in, we started on some bladder rest. That's a terrible one, an uncomfortable one in the early phases. The necrosis, with all, when you start combining hemorrhagic control modalities, Everything, all these things we're talking about are designed to limit the blood flow into the pelvis. And when you employ one, two, and three of them, then you're really creating a milieu where it's going to be, you're going to increase the risk for that. Infection. And so oh, when yeah. you've got something yeah. that's, that's ischemic, that's sitting there for long enough and pelvic, pelvis is fixed and X lap is done and peritoneal packing's out, 
bleeding has been controlled, like Dr. Vo said, it, it bleeding's been controlled by one, two, or three more modalities. A week, 10 days later, patient spikes a white count, and you know, you could have a significant soft tissue infection that you need to really keep in the back of your mind. Um, that that we've had it, you know, in our in our practice here in the last, I think it was a couple months ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are those are real real risks for sure. And am I right? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say these things don't happen in isolation, right? So what do you do with the open pelvis with a bunch of bo open bone in there and a colon injury now? Does that change how you manage that? You just go straight to the diverting loop or leave them staple off and see what it looks like when you come back. There's some gray area there because ideally, you know, colon, you can probably put that together in most instances if they're stable enough or, or you would want to leave them in discontinuity, put them back together. But then you come back and there's a bunch of open bone down there. And then, you know, they're putting their hardware in it's, you know, there are other factors that can, can increase your risk of complications in the pelvis you have to think about. Do you always leave a drain in that preperitoneal space or not always? It kind of depends on how much bleeding is left. I don't routinely um, leave a drain. If there's bleeding left, then there's still work to be done and it shouldn't be closed. Or it yeah. needs to go to angioembolization or something else needs to happen. I agree. I agree. And along the lines of associated injuries and kind of back to that point, are there any associated injuries that change the, uh, the way that you use the tools in your toolkit, maybe the order of events or would change any, any of the tools you would use or would not use with any associated injuries? Yeah, I, I, you got to deal with the bleeding other sources. If they're bleeding more from their spleen, take their spleen out, pack their pelvis, take the spleen, come back to the pelvis. For me, the always the interesting ones to think about, right, when you're gaming is what if they have, this is a big mechanism, big energy, what if they have some blunt thoracic aortic injury? I can't put a Reboa in for that. And if I'm going to access for angioembolization, do I fix the aorta first or the embolization? You deal with the bleeding source first, right? So embolization and then, I, you know, depending on the patient's condition, most of those blunt thoracic aortic, the really bad ones, I'll go up and do a T-bar, same access. But the ones that are a little less mild, then you get in debate, do I come back and fix that? And so there's, I, I'm sorry to delve into the vascular side of my bipolar brain, but there's some vascular things that can, associated vascular injuries can make things, and competing priorities. If you have a, let's say these people also get bad femur fractures. If I got a superficial femoral artery that's a completely occluded, how do I deal with that in the context of, you want to, you're given TXA and you're given all these other things to stop bleeding in the pelvis but you don't want the limb to be occluded when you're trying to fix it. So do I shunt? Do I, and I cross my fingers, do I try to do a quick primary fix on it? We can make all these things as complicated as you guys want, but uh, it's, it, this is why we get paid to do what we do, right? We figure out how to prioritize with a given patient that's in front of us. We like complicated. So what about extra peritoneal bladder injuries? You're doing your packing and you realize there's a bladder injury What's your approach to fixing that? Fix it, because by definition, it's now potentially, it could potentially be communicating intraperitoneal now if you're doing also, if, if you're in a case where you're doing the XLAP and the, uh, the preperitoneal packing, I mean, you've got to fix it. It's in your face. I, that's how I, um, in my hands, I approach it. How do you fix it? Two-layer closure? What do you Layers. do? Yep, exactly. Two-layer closure, leave the Foley in for seven days. Absorbable suture to avoid... Kidney stones. <laughs> oh, you were trained by Scalia, I can tell. 
yeah, it, I, I use uh, uh, essentially PDS um, as my first layer and then uh, some Vicryl um, as my second layer and a Foley. No stone forming uh, suture in my bladders. You still pack that patient? My thought process is if I am taking the time to do two layers of a repair, then they're probably not dying from exsanguination. Um, and so if they are, then yeah, I'll still pack it. I think it's easy to make that mistake to get bogged down. Oh, they're bleeding really bad from their pelvis, but they also have bladder injury. We got to fix that. You really don't, right? Just pack everything up and come back and fight another. No one died from a little urine spilling into their belly. Yeah, exactly. In preparation for our discussion today, I watched a bunch of, you know, videos on X-Fix, pelvic X-Fix and all that kind of stuff. It always seems like that hardware is like right in the right in the way to do prepared snail packing it's probably inconvenient for interventional radiology to access the groins do you have discussions with your orthopedic surgeons to say hey can you at least try to keep it out of the way here you know if it's higher it gets in the way of your laparotomy what are ways that you can make sure that they're not in the way for when you need it to be in, <laughs> not in the way yeah, we don't, we don't do this much here, so I don't know how much Tartiana has had to deal with this in the past, but uh, recent past anyway. Um, I, at, Mar at Maryland, where we had a great relationship with our orthopedic surgeons at UC Davis and other places, they understand those challenges because you've been in these fights with them multiple times. So they inherently will move the X-fix bar up a little closer to the abdomen. And then if you need to do an X-lap, they'll move it out of the way. It doesn't take long to move those bars around. And so... Uh, I had to deal with X fixes and place them myself sometimes in military setting. Occasionally with the good relationships with our orthopods, I would actually move them myself or take them apart for a second and then put them back together. And there are devices that they're, they're working with the C clamp, for example, keeps things nicely. Some of the new C clamps keep things nicely out of the way they're designed for those things. I don't know if there's a perfect mousetrap for it, but whatever you work, work with your, the, your collaborators, be it IR, I mean, you could think about opportunities to improve the relationship with IR. Like if you get the access form, you slow, that's the hardest part. So if you get that common femoral artery access, even if it's just a monitoring line, you're not doing Reboa, you're slowing, you're in, improving their time to hemorrhagic response. So work out this process with your people, sit around a table with the people who are going to be involved in these cases and say, this is how we're going to do it and, and understand what their challenges are as well as, and they understand yours. That's how you smooth this process out and you make it literally a NASCAR or a Formula. I'm a Formula One guy, Formula One pit crew. It moves quick. Yeah. Open communication. That's the key. No matter what time it is, you just got to talk it out. Any other specific populations you think uh, our listeners should be aware of? I think I can think of a lot of really complicated orthopedic issues. Previous hardware complicates things dramatically for a lot of patients. Uh, but that's not necessarily, they're still bleeding, they're bleeding. We have to deal with those particular injuries. So, and obviously the ones that are always haunt all of us, cirrhotics, right? People with a uh, heavy use, they just, I just had a coronary stent four months ago and I'm on aspirin and Plavix. Um, but those challenges are the same for all bleeding patients. You still just, you employ these adjuncts as, a, as part of the reversal process, if you will, and try to get them clotted and controlled as best you can. So one of the reasons we picked this topic is that the East Practice Management Guideline is getting revised. Uh -huh. Think there's anything new and up and coming in the future that we can look forward to to change our practice pattern because we know that these injuries still have a pretty significant mortality. 
I, I don't, I think we've listed all the tools, right? And some people think some of these tools are crazy. Some of them are not applicable, whether it's XFIX, whether it's BOA, some people are not going to have them in their toolkit. Uh, I, I hope the East will do what they always do, which is do a good review of the literature and do a measured uh, evaluation of what's available and how you can employ it. But I bet there, I would be willing to bet their underlying theme is figure out an algorithm and an organization that works for your institution and you. And not be flexible. I'm not saying don't stick with that algorithm, but have all those skill sets available and have a plan to escalate because all of these things I've had patients and you could conceivably think of a patient where you have to put in a Reboa, then you pack them. They're still bleeding. They do an X fix. They're still bleeding. You do an angioembolization. You know, it's all that's four interventions and, and all of these things take time. So when you integrate that and you have an integrated response, the minute you have a pelvic bleeder that you have identified, if you're going to do X-Fix, you, you, you pick up the phone, you have your orthopods responding, you have your interventional or your endovascular capabilities responding. All those things must as quickly as possible for that real deal bleeding pelvic fracture. You have that process, you have that understanding and that collaboration. Those patients are going to do the best. I agree 100%. I think there's, there's support to make recommendations for all of the adjuncts that we've discussed today. Um, but it's it's really just comes down to what you've got available to you. Well, thank you so much. I think we hit all the high points we wanted to touch on. This has been really informative and uh, we look forward to being able to read that new practice management guideline that will hopefully support everything we talked about here. <laughs> hopefully. <laughs> thank you so much. This is a, this has been a, an honor. And it's a lot of fun guys. Good to see good to see you all again. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks y'all. All right, bye guys. That wraps up another episode of TraumaCast brought to you by the Educational Resources Committee of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. Visit east.org to check out all the great educational and career development resources we have to offer and make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs or interviews. If you're searching for cutting edge science, professional education, networking, and career development, Remember, all you need to do is look to the east.